Hello, this is Guardian Daily. It's Thursday the 8th of October and I'm Michael White at the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester ahead of David Cameron's keynote speech today, which is the last day of the conference season. Three weeks of it. He's in front in the polls, but can he seal the deal with the British people? Uh, I just think he seems to uh, connect with people. I think he's got a good attitude and I think, uh, although people keep saying they don't know what uh, the Tories stand for, I think... You know, they're giving out quite a good uh, impression of uh, what they'd do if they did form the next government. And I'm John Dennis in London with the rest of the news. Italy's top court has overturned a law granting immunity from prosecution to the Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. As they go on, so they increase the risk of this country uh, being plunged into not just a political crisis but a constitutional one. And as postal workers announce the result of a national strike ballot, Amazon pulls out of a major contract with Royal Mail. It shows the weakness of relying on parcels businesses to uh, to try and compensate for the decline in letters. First, here's Bill Overton with the headlines. Plans for a controversial new coal-fired power station at Kings North in Kent have been shelved. The news is being celebrated by green campaigners who've been protesting against the plant because of its increase in carbon emissions. The German company E.ON says demand for electricity has fallen in the recession, but they believe it may well be worthwhile again in five years' time. Islanders in the South Pacific fled away from the coastline after three strong earthquakes struck the region again. There was a warning of another tsunami, but it turned out to be very small. There was panic, nevertheless, in countries like Papua New Guinea. But in the North Pacific, a powerful typhoon swept across Japan. It's caused widespread damage and flooding, and all flights to the outside world are suspended. The storm has now weakened slightly. In Honduras, diplomats from a dozen countries are in the capital holding peace talks. They spoke to the ousted president, Manuel Zelaya, who's taken refuge in the Brazilian embassy. Then they told the interim government the takeover was undemocratic. But the acting president, Roberto Micheliti, has insisted the military-led removal of the previous president was lawful. One in four people in the world is now a Muslim. The global Islamic population now stands at 1.57 billion, according to the American Pew Forum on Religion. There are some surprises, such as the number of Muslims in China and Russia, where there are more than in many countries in the Middle East. There are also more Muslims in Germany than in Lebanon. In the International League table of universities, Cambridge is still second only to Harvard in the USA. But Oxford has fallen to fifth place behind University College London. The rankings are based on a survey of academics, research work and teaching. The Conservatives once again get themselves onto the front page of the morning papers with speculation about what David Cameron will say in his closing speech at the party conference today. We'll back hard workers is the Telegraph's version, saying he'll attack the culture of irresponsibility in Britain. Things can only get better, eventually, is what the Independent expects from Cameron. And our paper's been told he had aimed to push through an emergency budget, including spending cuts and increases in VAT, if elected. Meanwhile, the Financial Times hears from Philip Hammond of the Shadow Cabinet that a Tory government could get Britain booming again. Mr Hammond reckons only two years of pain could cure Britain. The other story leading more than one paper involving the former council official in charge of childcare in Haringey during the Baber Peter affair, that's Sharon Shoesmith. Our paper reports her claim the sacking was a flagrant breach of natural justice. The Times says the furore over Baby P left her suicidal while the Mail sarcastically reports after Baby P's death, she was given a pay rise, called a heroine by her boss and sent emails of praise by social services chiefs. 
but the paper goes on to point out that she is the woman whose social workers failed to save Baby P. There's more news and sport at guardian.co.uk. I'm Michael White in Manchester Central, the conference arena where excitement is building ahead of the leader's speech this afternoon. It was his virtuoso performance, roaming the stage without notes, that secured David Cameron the Conservative leadership in Blackpool four years ago. Now, having only been in Parliament since 2001, he has Downing Street in his sights. I'm here with The Guardian's leader writer, Julian Glover, but before we hear from him, here's our chief political correspondent, Nick Watt. Well, this afternoon, David Cameron will be closing the Conservative conference and um, his speech is going to really strike quite a different tone to what we've had through the week. Uh, The other big speech of the week was, of course, George Osborne's speech. He didn't smile during that speech and it was a pretty grim message. He's going to say that I'm ready to be Prime Minister. His words will be, I'm ready for that and so I believe are the British people. But then he's going to say it's going to be very tough. He says, I will be tested. There is a steep climb ahead. But the final thing he'll say, and I think he regards this as the most important, is he'll try to sort of revive the spirit of Ronald Reagan's famous uh, election campaign in 1984, the famous Morning in America, where he was uh, upbeat and optimistic. And David Cameron will say, yes, it's a steep climb ahead, but I can tell you this, the view from the summit will be worth it. And what he's trying to say is we have grim times ahead, and I know I'm going to have to navigate us through these very difficult times. But when we get there, life will be better, life will be sunnier under a Conservative government. Now Julian Glover's here. Julian, what's Cameron got to do with his speech today? He's got to tell them they're going to win, but not look overconfident. He's got to tell them that things are going to be difficult in government, but it'll go somewhere. In the end, there is a bright hope for the, for the party, for Britain, under a Cameron government. It's not just austerity. And he's also got to convey a message that he leads a team that's a government. He doesn't just lead an opposition. He's got to really look responsible and serious. And finally, one other thing they've been trying to do this week is draw together the two themes of the time he's been leader, the early period, if you put it like that, which was progressive, kind, hugging trees, loving huskies, and the second period, which was the nasty, swinging cuts. And he needs to draw that together that's into one narrative. Before and after the recession. Before and after the recession. And, and the aim of what they're trying to do in the speech, I think, is to bring together those two themes into one sort of message, this is what the Cameron government's going to be like. It'll be progress, but it'll also be tough. Okay. Um, Now, that's what he's got to say to the party faithful. It's a cliche of conference reporting that his uh, party leader always has two audiences. One in the hall, very important, that people are going to do all the work, stuff the letterboxes with leaflets and uh, pound the pavements, and the other is the electorate who will decide the outcome of that leaflet stuffing and pavement pounding. Uh, What's he got to say to voters? Same thing or uh, a different message? I think to voters the question he's got is does he address expenses head on? In the last two party conferences at Labour and, and the Liberal Democrats, people really evaded that issue. They didn't talk about the crisis of the spring. It was, it was nodded too dutifully, but nobody confronted it. Does Cameron really present himself as a party that's different? The old politics is going out of the window because they're worried that in the next few months there'll be more details and more expenses coming out. He doesn't want to get dragged down back into the mire. Does he take a line now and say, we're really going to be tough if, 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 if more comes out? Does he address that issue? The other maybe for the party is, does he just reassure them he is a Conservative? He's not just the heir to Blair. I think this week's gone well for that. The party likes him much more at the end of it than they have at the end of other conferences. 
my assumption has been that uh, come the election, because the result isn't certain, we are going to get a much bigger turnout than 61% last time, 59% the time before. I think that's a pretty crucial test of what's going to happen next year. It is, and and that goes to the thing you say there. It's about change. There is a possibility that if you vote, you have the feeling you're beginning to choose one of two governments, which wasn't the case, at least in the last two elections, when the outcome was obvious. So Cameron's essential need is to look like the change. And it's the most boring thing to sit here in in this hall and hear the word change used all the time, see it on every banner. It seems an empty, almost meaningless word, but it is the essence of what they need to look like if they are going to win that election. But it's going to be a different sort of change. Well, we'll find out from David Cameron later today. Well, we've bumped into Danny Finkelstein, who I first knew when he was a bright young thing working for David Owen in the SDP, and then he dramatically defected to the Conservatives in, was it 92 or 92? 92, wasn't it? Undramatically here joining the Conservatives after David had But there were lots of you, weren't there? There were, It was a very dramatic scene. Anyway, that was then. Uh, He stood uh, for Parliament. He didn't get in. He went to work for the Times, where he writes a very lively, smart column about football and politics and many other things, and uh, does the polling uh, for them as well as right leaders. He's tipped to go back to Downing Street if the Tories win. What should David Cameron do today when he um, uh, makes a speak? What's his task with his party and with the watching electorate, Danny? I believe he's got to hit the idea that he is the change. They're going to run It's Time for a Change is their election slogan. The big danger to that is everyone thinks you're all the same. All because the of what's happened the in the last and year. I think, so. So I, think, I think that that is intensified greatly by what's happened in the last year. Mm-hmm. In my view, the, um, the expenses row was a little bit about who bought whose spatula. Uh, but it was also about a feeling of disillusion with politicians and politics. And therefore, what David Cameron's got to do is show he gets that. It's very difficult, of course, for him to, to make people feel that MPs are wonderful and they're worth all the money they're being paid. That is a massive task. I don't expect him to I don't expect him to solve that problem, but I do expect him or, or, or think that it is his big task to project that he understands that, that he gets that national mood. I thought it was a big mistake of Gordon Brown to relegate that section of his speech so far back and not to make it a theme of his offering that you should trust it because all the politicians promises everything that they say they're going to do hit up against the wall that people simply don't believe them even when people are actually wrong i mean i often feel that by the time uh, what politicians are trying to say has been mediated by people like you and me in the media little wonder that uh, voters don't believe them but uh, voters are pretty ungenerous they pocket the successes and then they say Absolutely. what are you going to give me next but you can't you know the conservative party tried very hard i worked for it while it did so to sack its voters. This proved an unyielding strategy. <laughs> uh, and you politicians cannot do that. They have to listen to the electorate uh, if they don't want to regard the electorate as uh, their best possible employer, then they shouldn't allow themselves to be employed by the electorate. Right, so uh, the Guardian other people have done the same thing. Show pictures of leading members of the Shadow Cabinet to people outside in the street, outside the Ring of Steel uh, this week, and they don't recognise them, no. not even George Osborne. Well, it's, 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 it's a It's a big uh, ask, to use that dreadful football phrase, um, to expect them to uh, recognise pictures of the cabinet, let alone the shadow cabinet. People just aren't that interested. The the different different question is, are these people actually any good? And the truth is, you know, it's a patchy picture. And you watch um, the the stage and you think some of them are better than others. And you never know how good they are until they actually do it. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Danny Finkelstein of The Times... As anyone around here will tell you, despite a handsome lead in the polls, the Conservatives still face an anxious struggle to win. They need to take 117 seats just to form a government because 
The way the boundaries are drawn gives Labour a built-in advantage and piles up Tory votes in constituencies where they don't need them. And it's post-industrial Labour heartlands like this one in the northwest that are likely to be most resistant to a Cameron government. I ventured outside the conference arena's ring of steel here in central Manchester, took my life in my hands to test the mood and find out whether local people not connected with the conference are actually taking any notice of it. Unfortunately I can't say I have. No, um, uh, that's alright, uh, probably most people haven't. Do you think there's going to be a Conservative government at the next election? Possibly. Do you think it's time for a change yourself? Yes, definitely. What do you think of not David really. Cameron? Have you got an impression of him yet? Oh, I think he's quite good, actually. What do you like about him? Um, he's quite charismatic, I think. Okay. So I'm sure he'd like that answer. We're from the Guardian Media Unit. We're just stopping and asking people: Have they listened to the Tory conference at all down the road this week? No, no, not I at don't. all. Uh, who do you think is going to win the election? Don't know. Don't know if I really care to be don't, honest. Don't you? Don't you? <laughs> do you not vote? Um, I haven't done so far, no. And gosh, uh, how old are you? Thirty-one. Gosh, you've had a lot, lots of votes you haven't voted in. Well, you're obviously the wrong person to ask. Do you know who David Cameron is? Yes, I do. Yes. He's the fellow doing his <laughs> stuff down there. Do you have any impression of him at all? Um, I, I, to be honest, I don't pay too much attention no. to it all. Okay, so, so the answer is no. Not really, no. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Uh, we're asking people whether they've been following the Tory conference down the road this week. Yes, certainly have, both through the newspapers and the radio. What do you think of it really? all? Oh, I think it's good for Manchester that they've come here. It's a lot of people mm -hmm. obviously spending a lot of money. Few bob in the tills, yes. Yeah. But what about the question of the politics of it all? Are you impressed by what you've seen? Uh, yes, I am, I think, uh, compared to how they were a few years ago. Uh, are you normally a, a sort of conservative voter or a Labour uh, Liberal sort of voter? Probably tend to lean from Liberal towards the Tories. So you might be switching from Liberals to the Tories. Is that about David Cameron or about the yeah, party? Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed with David Cameron. What do you like about him? Uh, I just think he seems to uh, connect with people. I think he's got a good attitude and I think, uh, although people keep saying they don't know what uh, the Tories stand for, I think... Um, you know, they're giving out quite a good uh, impression of uh, what they'd do if they did form the gov next government. You're expecting a Conservative government too, are you? I'm, I'm expecting one. I'm not, you know, I'm not sort of particularly looking forward to that. Because? Idea, I don't know, just because um, recent their legacy. Legacy from 12 years ago? Legacy of, yeah. Margaret Thatcher, Margaret you mean? Thatcher, yeah, yeah. yeah. Still remember her? Long Still time ago. Her because I Long think 20 years nearly since she was in yeah, charge but of I the feel show. That, um, politics since her has been her legacy you know Labour was a result of Margaret Thatcher Tony Blair Gordon Brown are Margaret Thatcher's legacy in my opinion well you mean two pro uh, free market yes Yesterday's agenda was dominated by social issues, law and order, families, welfare reform and education, all bracketed under the heading Mending Our Broken Society. Once upon a time, speakers would receive rapturous applause for recommending bringing back the rope and extra prison, but these are, so we're told, modern conservatives with modern views. However, when Michael Gove took to the stage, he wasted no time before lampooning current standards in GCSE results. We ask students in GCSE science which is a better argument for nuclear power? Creating jobs or creating toxic waste? We ask students in GCSE science, which is healthier? A battered sausage or a grilled fish? 
These aren't rigorous tests of scientific knowledge. They're terrifying evidence of how our educational establishment has presided over a comprehensive decline in examination standards. What should we do with people who think that this country can become a scientific leader by asking about sausages in batter? <laughs> They've just got to go. With that in mind, our education editor, Polly Curtis, put it to the shadow school secretary that his education policy is traditionalist rather than progressive. I think it's important to recognise that the phrase progressive is probably one of the most uh, promiscuously used phrases in the, in the English language. But progressive education has come to mean a particular approach which is antithetical, to knowledge, opposed to traditional subjects, and which downplays the role of the teacher and sees the child essentially discovering facts and knowledge and the world for itself with the, the teacher as a sort of learning coach. Now, I think that's wrong. I think that what we crucially need to do is to recognise that the, the sort of um, knowledge-based curriculum divided into appropriate subjects with teachers who have deep subject knowledge and a passion for um, the, the subject that brought them into to education, that sort of approach is right. Uh, I don't think that's traditional because actually those schools which have had the opportunity to move outside bureaucratic control have adopted it and those schools which are in America, for example, like the uh, KIPP schools, the Knowledge is Power Programme schools, doing their best to transform the life chances of black and minority ethnic children, they adopt that approach. So tried and tested, yes, traditional, well, you know, Different people will take a different um, approach to that phrase. One of your arguments for academies and for freeing up paying conditions is to allow schools to pay teachers more. How do you square that with a pay freeze? Because we recognise that the total wage bill for teaching has to stay static because the extra money isn't there. But within the resources that we give to uh, schools, it's appropriate that heads and others should be able to exercise appropriate discretion. Um, if you look at any good organisation, then it devolves responsibility down to strong managers, and therefore we want to devolve responsibility down to heads to use that money as creatively as they think. If they can find, through generating efficiencies in other areas, ways of ensuring that teachers can be supported, and indeed that teachers can be supported through continuous professional development, then fantastic. Are you expecting a fight with the unions over all of this? I really enjoy all the conversations that I have with trade unions. And um, uh, Chris Keats, Christine Blower, uh, Mary Boosted, uh, John Dunford, Mick Brooks, all committed to improving state education. So I'm looking forward to working with them and um, uh, harnessing their enthusiasm for improving state education, um, if we're fortunate enough um, to be entrusted with government. Michael Gove talking there to Polly Curtis. So, I'm sure David Cameron has had an early night, no champagne, he went off that yesterday, and will be in calm, firm fettle, light lunch, not too much coffee, ready to speak this afternoon. I'll be back tomorrow with all the reaction from the hall and analysis from the Guardian's team of experts. Until then, goodbye. Michael White at the Tory party conference in Manchester, and there's full coverage of David Cameron's speech today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on The Guardian's website, we look at the modern art that's been brought to the White House by Barack Obama at guardian.co.uk slash America. Nino Bergenatze on Saakashvili's destructive leadership of Georgia. Have your say at guardian.co.uk slash comment is free. And The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, spells out what he'd do if he was Chancellor. guardian.co.uk slash business. 
Now, in Italy, the Constitutional Court has thrown out a law passed by Silvio Berlusconi's government, which meant he could not be prosecuted while he remained Prime Minister. With the details is our own correspondent, John Hooper. It's a big blow. He's already weakened by this scandal that has been uh, going on now for several months concerning, uh, first, his uh, unexplained relationship with a teenage girl and subsequently his alleged use of prostitutes uh, and the supplying of women to parties at his private residence in, in Rome. Now, another front has been opened up in that he is now going to have to face defending himself in two trials, which are unlikely to result in his conviction, uh, let alone his imprisonment, because he's over 70 years old and thus not liable to be jailed, but which are going to complicate his life. They're going to be making uh, everything that much more difficult for him from now on. And one of them is uh, the alleged bribing of David Mills, the husband of Britain's Olympics minister, Tessa Jowell. It is indeed. Um, Mr Mills is uh, due, in fact, today to launch his appeal against the four-and-a-half-year sentence that was handed down earlier this year um, for uh, his uh, acceptance, uh, the court found, of a $600,000 bribe from Mr Berlusconi for um, skewing his evidence in two trials which Mr. Berlusconi was a defendant back in the 1990s. Um, so what will happen in that case, because Mr. Berlusconi was cancelled out of the trial because of the immunity law, is that the whole proceedings are going to have to start over again. That means it's highly likely that they'll be timed out before a verdict is reached, but there's going to be more publicity and, and and more distraction, if you like. What about Berlusconi's political allies? How have they reacted to this? Well, in a way that is unquestionably worrying in any democracy, uh, his spokesman said that this was a political verdict. Uh, the leader of his party in the lower house of parliament said that the judges of Italy's constitutional court, beyond which there is no appeal, by the way, uh, had lined themselves up with the front attacking Mr. Berlusconi. This is the constant cry of the Prime Minister and his supporters, that the judiciary is left-wing, bent on attacking him. Um, and as they go on, so they increase the risk of this country uh, being plunged into not just a political crisis, but a constitutional one. John Hooper in Rome. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. My name's John Dennis. Coming up in Guardian Daily, at the High Court, the former Director of Children's Services at the centre of the Baby P case claims her dismissal was a breach of natural justice. They should be given an opportunity to defend themselves. And what Shoesmith's lawyers say is that she was given no opportunity at any time to do that. 
But first, Royal Mail has lost a major contract with its second biggest customer, the online retailer Amazon. The news comes as the Communication Workers' Union announces the result of a national strike ballot, which is likely to further disrupt deliveries across the country. The Guardian's head of business is Dan Roberts. We understand that Amazon has cancelled one of its um, key contracts with the Royal Mail to deliver larger parcels. So these are the sorts of big items of books that you get sent. Uh, Now, Amazon is the Royal Mail's second largest customer um, and um, online um, shopping is its golden is its is it the big jewel in its crown the Royal Mail hopes that this will be the growth business of the future so to lose this business in the middle of this damaging series of strikes is um, is likely to be immensely damaging and uh, Amazon's not the only customer of course that's uh, you know fed up with using the Royal Mail eBay customers have been voicing their uh, their frustration and uh, many businesses up and down the country yes I think it's caused an awful lot of um, uh, uh, anger um, uh, I mean we've already seen people complaining um as you say, eBay customers are particularly anxious because they get um, um, they have their own um, um, system for tracking the reliability of a seller, and you get marked down if it's late. And you know if it's not your fault, that's no, it that doesn't change the fact. Um, uh, but I think for small businesses, it's particularly damaging because people rely on um, on parcels deliveries, especially if you're selling. Um, I don't know. For example, we bought a parcel for a child- children's birthday gift bags. Uh, we, we were expecting a parcel, didn't arrive until after the birthday party. You know that sort of thing is not is it's not going to make you want to go back to that online retailer again. And and this is um, this is the sort of problems that, that I think are, people you, those sorts of anecdotes that you hear up and down the country at the moment. We're getting the result of this strike ballot today. I mean, what are the options for the Royal Mail in um, trying to, you know, soothe things and and avoid a a national strike? Well, it's tricky because the concerns that the CWU have... um while quite um, uh, quite genuine and and and, and substantial, they're also um, uh, they're, they're, a lot of them are hypothetical. The CWU is concerned about the direction that the modernisation is going at the Royal Mail. They're concerned about um, future job losses. A lot of jobs have already gone in the business, but in a voluntary redundancies and natural churn. Um, but they're concerned that this is going. There are going to be compulsory redundancies coming down the track, um, and they, they 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 may well be right. But it's very difficult for the Royal Mail management to respond to that. Given given that the, these are things that haven't happened yet. So it's one of those strikes that almost has an air of inevitability about it because the grievance is, 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 is real, but um, uh, the sorts of um, settlements that might address that future fear are hard to imagine. You can't imagine the Royal Mail saying, actually, you know, guess what? We can guarantee all of your jobs in, perpetu- in perpetuity. In in the current situation when they're, you know, facing increased competition, um, uh, it's very hard for them to promise that. I mean, the only solution I can see would be a political solution where the government uh, whichever government it is if it's the Tories if they get in either says right this is a vital public service that we're going to keep in public hands and we're going to stop competition or they say we're going to privatise this and let it run at full arm's length from the moment they're kind of caught in a limbo land in the middle Dan Roberts Haringey Council's Director of Children's Services was dismissed without compensation in December after a damning report into her department's failings in the Baby P case. Baby P, or Baby Peter, was 17 months old when he died in August 2007 at the hands of his mother, her lover and their lodger. He suffered 50 injuries despite receiving 60 visits from social workers, doctors and police. But Sharon Shoesmith claims she was the victim of a flagrant breach of the rules of natural justice and she's taken her case for compensation to the High Court. Ed Balls, the Children's Secretary, Haringey Council and Ofsted are contesting her claim. 
Patrick Butler, who's editor of Society Health and Education Policy for The Guardian, explains how the case affected Shoesmith. Even before she was dismissed, it became uh, very clear that uh, an immense amount of personal pressure was being put on Sharon Shoesmith, mainly by the media, an extraordinary vitriolic uh, tabloid campaign against her. Um, You may remember back in November... Uh, last year, barely a day went by without a picture of Sharon Shoesmith in in the papers. In the evidence, she describes her her life at that time, where every bus she got onto, there'd be people staring at her, she'd be photographed. The police would warn her not to travel by the tube or not to stand too close to the edge of the tube in case someone pushed her in. She'd get death threats, she got texts from people saying that they were going to kill her daughter. Um, It was an extraordinary stressful time for her and that was even before she was dismissed. Um, I think after her dismissal, um, clearly at that stage um, it became quite apparent to her that it was going to be very difficult for her to, um, to work again. And uh, what she's effectively arguing is that by uh, their handling of the case, her employers, Haringey and Ed Balls, have effectively destroyed her career, uh, ruined her financially and uh, had a very adverse impact on her health. And what evidence have they produced to back Sharon Shoesmith's claim? Sharon Shoesmith and her legal team have compiled what is in effect a huge dossier um, which is based on uh, emails that Sharon Shoesmith received while she was in office, with, based on minutes of discussions between Ofsted and Ed, Ed Balls, some interesting emails between uh, senior civil servants at the Department for Children and Ofsted. Uh, effectively, what they've done is is produce a, a very detailed chronology of the events uh, leading from uh, the, the 11th of November last year, uh, in 2008, which was uh, when, as, as you may remember, um, uh, the Baby P court case finished right through to Shoesmith's uh, dismissal uh, on 8th of December and beyond. Essentially, it's a narrative which tells how at, at the start of, of the story, um, officials, uh, both in Haringey and the Department for Children, were actually quite confident that this story that they knew they was potentially a hot potato uh, could be handled and then what you actually see is how their control over that story uh, unraveled as the, the the controversy took flight. Patrick Butler the cyclist Sir Chris Hoy was forced to give up his bike for 10 weeks while he recovered from an injury. Well, now he's looking forward to the National Track Championships in Manchester and a World Cup meeting later this month. And, of course, defending his Olympic titles in London in 2012. He told The Guardian's Richard Williams that the crash could have been a blessing in disguise. I look back now and I think that it's the best thing that could happen to me. You know, at the time it was not disastrous, but it was very disappointing and it was... The first time I had to really deal with a, a severe injury and it, that put me out of World Championship. And in that respect, I've been very lucky. I've had a long career and only to have had one serious injury that's put me out of uh, a major championship. But at the time, it was frustrating and I, I was, you know, obviously desperate to get back on the bike and get back into training. And I'd never spent that length of time off my bike before. How long? Um, ten weeks of doing, you know, I couldn't actually, it wasn't even training, just I couldn't bend my hip enough to actually ride a bike so I couldn't do anything for 10 weeks um, and I was very busy doing other things but in terms of physical exercise I hadn't done any in that period of time so it was quite hard to deal with 
it's given me a, a new enthusiasm for my training. You know, I came back into just desperate to get on on the bike, get desperate to get back with my teammates in the track centre. I missed it so much, and I think that if I hadn't missed it, if I had got used to that lifestyle and just relaxed a bit, and, and the thought of training again was, you know, a bit of a bind, then that would have been the sign that, you know, maybe it's time to hang up my wheels. But you know, I certainly it couldn't have been further from the truth, and it's given me a bit of a rest physically, certainly a rest mentally, and I'm coming back into it really fresh and enjoying it all, all the more than, than I did before. This is not an original thought, but you were 36 in, in 2012. Do you have any models for athletes who've performed at that kind of age? You know, in cycling terms, there was, in Beijing, there was um, a 40-year-old Argentinian who won a gold medal in the Madison, a 39-year-old Spaniard who won a gold medal in the points race, Jamie Staff, my teammate in the team sprint, the fastest man in the world over one lap. He was 35 in, in Beijing. so. It just shows me that you don't, you know, it's not all about being 2021. 20, um, a lot of it is about learning your body and learning the, the, the signs, you know, when to rest, when to train. You become more, you become smarter, I think, in terms of how you train and, and how you apply yourself. You know, when I was younger, I used to hammer myself and just train all the time. I would get ill, I would miss a week's training because I was ill, and I get back into it, I train doubly hard to try and make up for the lost time, get ill again, and you find this really inconsistent pattern. Whereas I think the older I get now, the more I appreciate what it is I'm trying to achieve and how I can achieve it. So in that respect, yeah, I don't see any reason why I can't go on and perform even better in, in, in London. Chris Hoy talking to Richard Williams. Andy Duckworth and Tim Maybe, and in Manchester, Phil Maynard with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. And my name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.